The ancient uh, Jewish temple in the days of Jesus looked something like this. Later this year, a whole bunch of folks here are going to be heading to uh, Israel for another one of our Israel tours. Uh, I think there's still room in a bus, so if you're interested, uh, uh, call the church office. But um, uh, the large outer area there around that temple area, the large outer court is called the Court of the Gentiles. And it was this large open area, uh, this Court of the Gentiles, where only uh, non-Jews could gather. Uh, they could not go into the temple area. They were stopped. Gentiles were stopped from going to that sacred temple area by a wall. And according to Josephus, an ancient Jewish historian, he said that there were along that wall around the inner temple uh, large uh, stone, um, chiseled in stone, large plaques, warning signs, ancient warning signs, that uh, for, forbade any uh, non-Jew to go farther than that point. Um, 18 centuries after Josephus wrote those words, in 1871, archaeologists actually unearthed one of those actual stones, uh, proving that what Josephus had said was really true. Uh, they were these warning signs written in, in Greek and in Latin that said these words, no foreigner is to go beyond the balustrade in the plaza of the temple zone. And whoever is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his death, which will follow. Nah, that was, would keep you from going where you shouldn't touch your toe, where you shouldn't go. Um, probably taken from the law, book of Deuteronomy, the second giving of the law. In Deuteronomy 23, there were laws that said... Um, no eunuch, no illegitimate born person, no foreigner could have a place in the company of the, of the people of God. They were excluded, excluded. They were outcasts from the blessings of Israel. No one had a place within the, the community of the believing company who did not belong there, foreigners, eunuchs, illegitimate children, outcasts. Now, in our passage in the book of Isaiah today, Isaiah communicates some really remarkable and astounding good news to these very outcasts. And as we're continuing our study of the book of Isaiah, we're in chapter 56 and 57 this morning, so take your Bibles, Isaiah chapter 56. Just to remind us, though, of the flow as we get up to chapter 56, just the, con the context that what we've seen. God is a very gracious and loving God. And so, for instance, chapter 53, we've read these words. Surely our griefs he himself bore, our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourgings we are healed. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, and he will bear their iniquities. God is a gracious God. Or the very next chapter, chapter 54, for a brief moment I forsook you, but with great compassion I will gather you. 
In an outburst of anger, I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting loving kindness, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. For the mountains may be removed, the hills may shake, but my loving kindness will not be removed from you. My covenant of peace will not be shaken, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. Or the next chapter, chapter 55. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. You who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and, and milk without money, without cost. For you will go out with joy. You will be led forth with peace. The mountains and the hills will break forth into shouts of joy before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. And instead of the thorn bush, the cypress will come up. And instead of the nettle, the myrtle will come up. And it will be a memorial to the Lord for an everlasting sign which will not be cut off. God promises his people over and over again. He promises this coming day of everlasting joy, of eternal shalom, peace, that will flood the entire world. This day of righteousness and justice and salvation that's coming. And it will be because of God's grace and his compassion and his mercy that people will enjoy and experience this coming day. Now, chapter 56 begins with um, an exhortation to his people as they await that coming day to live righteously. So chapter 56, verse 1 and 2, thus says the Lord, preserve justice, do righteousness, for my salvation is about to come. My righteousness will be revealed, is to be revealed. How blessed is the man who does this, and the son of man who takes hold of it, who keeps from profaning the Sabbath and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Here's this call as we await the coming of God's righteousness on the earth, a call for God's people to live righteously, to not profane the Sabbath. And in the Old Testament, Sabbath-keeping was an example of, of the reverent heart of the worshiper, an expression of faith. Blessed are the ones who live righteously. Blessed is the one who reverences the Lord, who lives their life in honor of the Lord. Now, who are those blessed ones who live righteously? Well, starting in verse 3, if you were a typical Jew in the days of Isaiah hearing him and or reading this, you would be shocked by what comes. Look at verse 3. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, oh, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. Neither let the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me and hold fast my covenant, to them I will give in my house and without, within my walls a memorial. I will give a name better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name which will not be cut off. Verse 6, also the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants. Everyone who keeps from profaning the Sabbath and holds, my, holds fast my covenant, even those I will bring to my holy mountain, and I will make them joyful in my house of prayer. And their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all the peoples. 
the Lord God, verse 8, who gathers the dispersed of Israel declares, yet others I will gather to them, to those already gathered. To those who were labeled outcasts, he says, I've got a place for you. If your heart is towards me, if you pursue, pursue me, if you reverence my name by not profaning the Sabbaths, if you seek me, if you pursue me, you will enjoy the covenantal promises. Shocking words. They have honored the Lord. They have kept fast to his covenant. And God says, I will bless you. I will honor you. I will welcome you into my house of prayer. To even, as it says in verse 6, to even minister to serve the Lord. Foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to him, to, to lo who love the name of the Lord. They will serve before the Lord. They will offer these sacrifices. I mean, again, these, this is shocking stuff. Foreigners actually functioning like like Jewish priests serving, ministering, offerings before the Lord? Uh, I don't think we understand the gravity of what Isaiah's writing here. How absolutely bizarre this is. God's grace, God's grace will actually overcome his word of the law that says you cannot come. And yet here in Isaiah 56, He's inviting the outcasts to join in the covenantal blessings. In fact, this section where it's revealed these eunuchs and these foreigners, they're more deserving of enjoying the benefits of this coming day of righteousness and salvation even more than the people who should be enjoying it. The Israelites who, as Isaiah writes this, are in the thralls of idolatry. It's a contrast that's set up, if we start in verse 9, between those who should not be blessed, but are, and those who should be blessed, but aren't. Verse 9, all you beasts of the field, all you beasts in the forest, come to eat. Now, that's a strange verse, but it's, I think it's quite graphic. He's inviting the beasts to come and devour his people who are living in idolatry. Beasts, come and feast on my people who have turned their back from me. Starting with the leaders, verse 10, his watchmen, they're blind. All of them know nothing. All of them are mute dogs, unable to bark. Dreamers lying down who love to slumber, and the dogs are greedy. They are not satisfied. And they are shepherds who have no understanding, ignorant leaders, spiritual leaders. They have all turned to their own way, each one to his unjust gain, to the very last one. And they say, come, let us get wine and, and let us drink heavily and strong drink. And, and tomorrow, well, it'll be just like today, only more so. We'll just get up and do the same thing. Here, Isaiah is writing and God is communicating to the spiritual leaders of Israel. Their self-centered desire, their self-indulged lifestyle. They are lazy, they're ignorant, 
and their doom is certain. Come, beasts, and feasts on the spiritual leaders who are ignorant, self-indulged. He continues, chapter 57, verse 1, it just the flow of the thought continues. The righteous man perishes, and no one takes it to heart. Devout men are taken away while no one understands. It's like, what's happening here in Israel? I mean, good people are dying, and no one even cares. The country is full of, 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 of wicked-hearted people led by the leaders. The righteous man is taken away from evil. In verse 2, he enters into peace, and they rest in their beds, each one who walked in his upright way. It would seem that God in his mercy is taking out the righteous. It's like they can't even, they can't wait to get away from the pervasive evil that was happening in Israel. The righteous get peace. The wicked get condemnation. Sinful Israel is exposed, starting in verse 3, in these following verses. And it's, it's, it's graphic, it's... it's um, um, the, the evil is so deep, and the wickedness is so palpable, it's so evil. Verse 3, but come here, you, you sons of a sorceress, offspring of an adulterer and a, and a prostitute. Talking about the, the spiritual hearts of these people who've turned away from God to other spirits, idolatry, Verse 4, against whom do you jest? Against whom do you open wide your mouth and stick out your tongue? Are you not children of rebellion, offspring of deceit? These spiritual perverted have become mockers and scoffers. Who are you sticking your tongue out? Who are you making jest of? You who are children of rebellion. Verse 5, who inflame yourselves among the oaks under every luxuriant tree and slaughter the children in the ravines under the clefts of the crags. Child sacrificing going on. Sensual worship, these, these fertility cults, these ancient practices, lewd, evil, wicked, perverted practices of false religions that even led them to take their children and butcher them. Friday I turned 64 years old, and for 64 years I've enjoyed a birthday. And almost 60 million children in this country have not because of the perverted practice of abortion. Some of you have probably attended the movie Unplanned, that's playing in the theaters. Focus on the Family said it's a must-see. Rated R because of some of the graphics of the abortion clinic. The story of a, of a former Planned Parenthood abortion clinic director. Well, in ancient Israel, they were doing the very same thing, slaughtering their children in religious practices. Verse 6, among the smooth stones of the ravine is your portion, they are your lot. Even to, to them you have poured out a drink offering. So we've got 
um, the, the worship of creation over the creator. You have made a grain offering. Shall I relent concerning these things? I think he's almost, he's saying here, you know, do you want me to continue? Sh- should I stop at this point? Are you getting my point? Verse 7, upon a high and lofty mountain you have made your bed and also went up there to offer sacrifice. Again, uh, ritual prostitution that is going on. These fertility cults, evil. Behind, verse 8, behind uh, the door and the doorpost you have set up your sign. Indeed, far removed from me, you have uncovered yourself. You have gone up and made your bed wide, and you have made an agreement for yourself with them, and you've loved their bed, and you've looked on their manhood. That's a euphemism for, for this naked, uh, lewd, uh, ritual uh, worship, ancient paganism. Verse 9, you have journeyed to the king with oil, increased your perfumes. You have sent your envoys a great distance and made them go down even to Sheol, You haven't looked to me, God is saying. You haven't trusted me at all. You're worshiping other gods in the most evil, wicked ways. And then you send out your emissaries and your envoys to to make alliances with other nations. They've traveled far and wide. Verse 10, you were tired out by the length of your road, yet you did not say it's hopeless. You found renewed strength, and therefore you didn't faint. You just kept going on and on in your wickedness, in your evil heart. Verse 11, of whom were you worried and fearful when you lied and did not remember me, nor give me a thought? Was I not silent even for a long time? And so you do not fear me? So you didn't hear from me? So I didn't smack you upside down the head in your evil ways? So I let you go on in your evilness? Did you think I was non-existent so you could just continue to to not fear me verse 12 i will declare your righteousness and your deeds but they will not profit you let me write down the good things that you have done let, let me declare to you the righteous things that that can be attributed to you well guess what there's nothing they will not profit you there's nothing verse 13 when you cry out let your collection of idols deliver you <laughs> but the wind will carry all of them up and a breath will take them away. They misunderstood the silence of God. They did not fear him. They put their trust in their idols and God said, all right, go ahead. But the wind will blow and they're nothing. But, the last part of verse 13, but, He who takes refuge in me shall inherit the land and shall possess my holy mountain. And now we're back to this theme. Salvation is coming. Live righteously. Reverence my name. Don't profane my Sabbath. Wait for me. Wait for the coming time of blessing. And he who takes refuge in me will then inherit the land. This is the promise of uh, back in the Torah, of the land, the place of blessing. You'll possess my holy mountain. A day is coming when there will be this peace and joy and those who take refuge, God says. And so he focuses now again back on those who are blessed. It should be said, build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstacle out of the way of my people. For thus says 
the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy. And that's a whole sermon right there to, to, to unpack the, those names of God. Thus says the high and exalted one. That's what Isaiah saw in Isaiah chapter, chapter 6 when he had that vision in his call. In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted. And smoke filled the temple. His train filled the temple, and the, the seraphim were saying, Holy, holy, holy. Well, this one, the high and exalted one, who lives forever, the eternal one, whose name is holy, separate, the unique one, the one of a kind. What does he say? Last part of verse 15, I dwell on high and a holy place. I dwell on a high and holy place, but also with the contrite and lowly of spirit. I am the exalted, holy, separate God, the sovereign Lord, but I dwell with the humble of heart in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and revive the heart of the contrite. Verse 16 and 17 a bit of a veiled promise. I will not contend forever, neither will I always be angry, for the Spirit would grow faint before me and the breath of those whom I have made. Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry. I struck him. I hid my face and was angry. And he went on turning away in the way of his heart. But I have seen his ways, and I will heal him. Verse 18. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and to his mourners. Those that turn to him, who repent. Those of his people who have gone the way of wickedness, who hear this message and this call to righteousness, and they turn. He says, I will lead him, verse 18. I will heal him. I will restore comfort to him, verse 19, creating the praise of the lips. Peace, peace, shalom, shalom to him who is far and to him who is near says the Lord, I will heal him. God will heal, he will lead, he will guide, he will restore comfort. He will grant shalom, shalom, peace, peace. Peace now, verse 2, peace to come to those who walk humbly before him. And he ends again, it's just like you can't get away from it. It's one final warning, verse 20, 21, but the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up refuse and mud. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. And it's a phrase that's been repeated before in Isaiah. Just to accentuate this point, there is no shalom and peace. They will not experience the inheritance in the land they will not experience the covenantal blessings they're about to call, uh, fall on them. When the salvation comes, God says, and my righteousness and justice is poured out upon this earth, they will not be partakers. There is no peace for the wicked. Such a contrast in these two chapters that are being set up. You've got the righteous who reverence God. They're the Sabbath keepers. They've joined themselves to the Lord. All that they do, it pleases the Lord. These are the righteous ones. They serve the Lord. They minister before Him, and they're humble before Him. In contrast is the wicked, who have no understanding. They're ignorant. 
the self-indulged leaders. Verse 8, they're far removed from God. Verse 11, they don't even remember God. Verse 11, they don't fear God. And what's the result? Peace. A revived and healed soul. Peace for the righteous. No peace for the wicked. And the amazing thing about this passage is that the people who are the righteous were once the outcasts, the foreigner, the eunuch, who pursued God in faith. Those who should not have received God's blessing received it. Those who should have did not. There's a number of things I think that we can talk about and we could again develop sermons around. I just want to walk through them quickly. Like God's grace knows no boundaries. That's what this passage is saying. God's grace rejects no one. Whoever turns to him in faith, we've often said here, you can never be too bad to get to heaven. You might be too good because your goodness can keep you from seeing that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. God's grace knows no boundaries. God does hold shepherds to greater accountability. Spiritual leaders are held to greater account. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17 reminds us that the leaders of the church that keep watch over your souls are those who will give an account before God. Putting that in a practical way, the elders of this church will one day stand before God and give an account for how this church was led. That would keep many people probably from wanting to be on the elder board at Fellowship Bible Church or any church. Or number three, death to the righteous person is ultimately a blessing. Death to the righteous person the righteous are taken away, but a righteous man is taken away from evil to enter into peace. Uh, if you have a pulse here this morning and are alive, you, we're living in the land of the evil. And our loved ones and some of even our dear friends who have recently gone home to be with the Lord, they have left this place of evil and they are experiencing God's peace and rest. We are living in the land of the dead on our way to the land of the living. It's a proper perspective of death. A fourth thing we could talk about in this passage is that God will always punish those who don't fear him. Paul tells us this in Romans 6, the wages of sin is death. And he writes that to believers. Romans chapter 6 is written to believers. The wages of sin, we often use that in terms of uh, evangelism, but I think in the context, Paul is saying, look, even as believers, we mess with sin. There's an experience of, of death. Oh, our heart is pumping and blood is flowing through us and we're walking and doing our jobs and everything else. But there is the sense of of separation from the blessings of God, from the life of God. Jesus said, I came to give you life and give it to you in abundance. And when we walk away from him and don't give him the reverence that is due his name, 
there's a pall of death that hangs over one's life because God will always punish those who don't fear him. On the same token, God will always bless those who do, who walk humbly before him. He gives grace to the humble. He'll take down the proudful, but he'll always give grace to the one who understands their position before the high and exalted one, the mighty sovereign Lord, and the one who bows the knee before him. He'll give grace. Now, there's a story in the New Testament that I think uh, wonderfully illustrates these two chapters of Isaiah. In fact, I think Isaiah 56 and 57 was probably in the mind of our Lord when this story took place. So turn with me to Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17. It's a familiar story of 10 lepers who got healed by Jesus. Luke chapter 17, verse 11. It says, while he, while Jesus was on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing between Samaria and Galilee, and he entered a village where 10 leprous men stood at a distance and met him. And they raised their voices and they said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Alfred Edersheim, another Jewish historian who's with the Lord now, wrote that Judaism taught that next to defilement from the dead, it was defilement from leprosy that stood foremost. Jewish religious officials taught that diseases were caused by sin, and since leprosy was the worst disease Lepers were the worst sinners. And so whenever a leper came near people or people came near a leper, they were by law called upon to cry, unclean, unclean, and warn the people. In fact, there was even laws in, in the first century of Judaism that said you had to stay so many feet away from well people if you were a leper. Here were the ten lepers, and as Jesus entered the village, verse 12 says, they, they did their due diligence. They stood at a distance from him. They were obedient to the law. But all of a sudden, their words, unclean, unclean, were changed to, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And verse 14 says, when he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourself to the priests. I said, what kind of a response is that? You know, go show yourself to the priest. You know, get out of here, go see a priest. Well, Jesus is actually taking um, an understanding of the Leviticus, chapter 13 and 14, from the law. He's taking the words of the law. Leviticus 13 gives instructions if you have leprosy. And if in the rare case your leprosy left, Leviticus 14 gave you particular laws on what you should do if you were healed. And the first thing it says is you go to a priest and show yourself to a priest. Here were 10 lepers. Who knows what they look like? Limbs missing, pus-filled faces, wretched, wretched creatures. And Jesus tells them, go and show yourself to a priest. 
And it says they were going and then they were cleansed. It's a test of faith. He said nothing about you're healed, now go show yourself to the priest. He just says go show yourself to the priest. And I'm sure there was a moment of pause and then, okay, and they turned as they went, they're cleansed. <laughs> what a day. What incredible joy. Verse 15 says, though, now one of them, when he saw that he had been healed, turned back, and he was glorifying God with a loud voice, I can imagine. Instead of ten racing for the priest, nine were, but one stopped dead in his tracks. He didn't go to the priest. He turned back to Jesus. Why didn't he obey Jesus and go to the priest like the other nine? Verse 16 says, And he fell on his face at the feet of Jesus, giving thanks to him, and he was a Samaritan. You see, folks, there was no priest to go to. You remember the, the temple and the big plaques, the warning signs? Uh-uh. You don't go beyond this point. You don't get to go to a priest if you're a Samaritan. The other nine, they're focused on their healing, heading to the priest. And this outcast Samaritan, he turns and focuses on the healer. He fell at his feet. He gives thanks, for he was a despised outcast. Verse 17, then Jesus answered and said, gives these three questions. Were there not ten cleansed? But the nine, where are they? Was no one found who returned to give glory to God except this? And mark it and mark it well. All our translations. This foreigner. It's the only time that word is used in the New Testament. And it's used in this passage, in this context. Why? Because Jesus, the servant of the Lord of Isaiah, understood Isaiah 56 and 57, that God reaches out to the lowly and contrite. He pours out his mercy and grace on the outcasts, the eunuch, the foreigner. Was no one found to return to give glory except this foreigner? The foreigner who couldn't make it to the temple, blocked from going to the priests because no foreigner could go beyond the wall or suffer the penalty of death. One more verse, verse 19 says, And Jesus said to him, Rise, go your way, your faith has made you well. And the Greek word that's used there for well is the word sozo, has saved you, has rescued you, has delivered you. And what is Jesus telling this man? Well, maybe in one part he's saying, as you turned to head to the priest, you were healed like the other nine. In faith you turned and you were healed. Your faith has made you well. 
But it's not that turning that Jesus has in mind. Because that leper, now cleansed, was turning to a dead-end street. There was nothing he could do as a foreigner. And so he turned back to the healer. And Jesus is saying, your faith in me has not just healed your physical leprosy, but your spiritual leprosy too. And he says, arise, go your way. Your faith has saved you. Coming to Jesus, this foreigner received something that I'm not sure the other nine received. Not just physical healing, but spiritual cleansing. The outcast was saved. You see, that outcast, that Samaritan leper, encountered that day the servant of the Lord of Isaiah 53, who bore his griefs, who carried away his sorrows, who was crushed for his iniquities and pierced through for his transgressions. That outcast, that foreigner that day in his encounter with Jesus met the one who Isaiah 54 says is the Redeemer and the God of all the earth, the one with everlasting kindness and chesed, compassion. That foreigner, that Samaritan outcast met the one who Isaiah 55 talks about is the one who invites anyone who's thirsty, ho, the one who's thirsty, come. Every hungry, spiritually hungry person, come. And without cost, he would give them the abundance of his delights. The one who, if you turn to, will give you his abundant blessings. The one he turned to that day and was eternally transformed by was the one of Isaiah 56, 57, who allotted him a place in his house of prayer. Come, outcast. I invite you into my house of prayer. Who gave him peace, peace. Those who are far, those who are near, and I will heal him. The lowly and contrite of heart. Jesus, when he spoke to that leper, was standing on the solid ground of Isaiah. He, the servant of the Lord, offering to an outcast, a foreigner, the very thing that had been predicted in Isaiah 56. Truth be told, there's not a person in this room who rightfully doesn't, shouldn't be placed in the category of the outcast. Because the Bible does tell us every one of us born in this world is born in a sin. We're born enemies of God. Outcast is a label that every one of us can wear because we're born sinners. And at the blessing of the good news of Isaiah reminds us that he truly was the servant of the Lord who paid for our sins and died in our, in our behalf. He rose again triumphant. He's the coming one who's going to bring eternal salvation 
eternal righteousness and bring in his justice and shalom on this earth one day. And all those who've put their trust, the lowly and contrite of heart, who've humbled themselves at the feet of Jesus and said, I have nowhere to turn. I'm an outcast. I'm a foreigner. I don't deserve. Everyone who has placed their faith in Christ and Christ alone has a place in his house of prayer, has a place in the coming kingdom one day with all the joy and the blessings associated with it. Have you trusted him as your Savior today? Do you know beyond a shadow of a doubt where you will spend eternity? Jesus died for your sins, and he rose again for you. Have you put your trust in the Savior? No longer then are you an outcast. I call you, he said, my friends. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, when those lepers cried out, Jesus, Master, have mercy, there was no more beautiful name that they could call out than that name of Jesus, which means salvation is of the, our God. It's the name, Lord, you gave to Isaiah, very same name. Salvation is of our God. The beautiful name of Jesus. And anyone who calls out to that name will get the same response. Arise, go your way. Your faith has saved you. I pray, Father, that that might be true this morning. To anyone who's here today, Lord, for your glory, these words are, are, are shared. For your glory, Father, I pray that they have been received. In Christ's name I pray, amen.